Thank you, sir. All right, let's, um, let's begin this morning by praying Psalm 19 together on page 790 of your hymnal. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, um, your word um, to us is more precious than gold, even much pure gold. It is sweeter than honey, even honey from the comb. And Father, this morning we pray that you would um, give us um, that kind of perspective on your word, um, not only this day, but in our lives generally. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts as we gather um, for worship here this morning. And we ask um, that you would bless us now with your spirit as we continue to discuss the scriptures in our time together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, before we jump into Westminster Confession material, um, is there any, anything to discuss from ground we've covered recently in the book of Genesis and our sermons? Anything, any questions, anything people want to ask about or follow up on or make a comment about? Anything at all? Sure.
Animals heard things, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's great. So Daniel's asking about the um, contrast between Cain and Abel's offering and why the Lord accepted one and not the other. I mean, certainly I think that we could talk about the heart um, in terms of, you know, Hebrews 11, for example, says that, um, that the Lord accepted um, Abel's offering. He saw the faith um, that he had, um, you know, by faith, um, Cain offer, or, sorry, Abel offered um, his offering to the Lord and was accepted. That's one of the by-faiths there in Hebrews 11. Uh, certainly Cain is talked about, yeah, in 1 John and, um, as, as having a, a heart against the Lord, and, and that manifests itself in various ways. Um, I think I wouldn't necessarily, like, disagree with your professor, I don't think, in terms of the importance of the heart, but I do think that the heart is reflected then in the act um, of um, sacrifice or not there in that passage. And I, I do think um, part of the reason I think that is all the contextual stuff that takes place um, previously in Genesis 2 and 3, um, the Lord um, clothing um, Cain and Abel's parents with uh, skins of an animal, which means an animal had to die. Um, uh, also, the way that the Lord responds to Cain in terms of saying, um, if you do right, will you not be accepted? Um, which to me makes it clear that that there was a, you know, it wasn't some sort of nebulous thing that Cain couldn't fix about his heart being corrupt. Um, there was a path of repentance available to him. And if he had submitted an obedience to what the Lord uh, required, then he would have been acceptable to God. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I would, like, say that the, the view that you're or talking about is um, in conflict with what I'm saying. But I do think that what I am saying is that it wasn't merely about some kind of internal posture towards God. It was an internal posture that, as is always the case, was demonstrated in um, the actions that a person is, takes towards God. And so um, we, we could, yeah. So does that make sense? Like Cain's heart comes out, I think, in the way that he interacts with the Lord. I, I would disagree with that. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think just reading the Bible as a whole, um, as we talked about last week, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, um, it, to me, it just it, I, I see substitutionary atonement there just right from the beginning um, in the garden and then flowing out. Um, you see that with um, <clears throat> uh, Noah making sacrifices after the flood. Um, you see that with Abraham um, building altars and sacrificing to the Lord. Um, now, none of that becomes as explicit as it does later in the Mosaic Covenant um, when the Lord, you know, indirectly in institutes um, the sacrificial system in its, in its fullness. But I believe that all of that, you know, was, there was preparation being made. Um, that that's a basic principle that the Lord had from the very beginning. And it, it gets codified in the Mosaic Covenant um, in, a, in a new way, but it, it's always there in proto-form uh, previously to that. And that's, and that's part of, you know, just the argument I'm making in terms of reading the scripture as a whole and seeing what happens in Genesis as a kind of um, a beginning. It's, it's, it's everything is in seed form there um, that it gets demonstrated in, in new ways throughout the rest of the scriptures. So that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah, I appreciate that though. Anything else? Any other thoughts or comments or things from Genesis? Yeah. Uh, Donovan. Okay. What is my take on that? Well, I, I mean, I'm hesitant to try to give some kind of definitive answer to that. I haven't studied in depth the Hebrew there. You're right that there are different ways that that verse is translated in terms of um, Eve's desire. I think the ESV has will be contrary to your husband, uh, but he will rule over you. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm ready to give some kind of definitive answer. I think clearly part of the curse is that there will be um, conflict, there will be difficulty in the relationship between husband and wife, um, or men and women generally. Um, uh, but I, I don't know beyond that if I want to try to comment further. Or is there... What's that? Something like that. Yeah, James. It is. It's the same. Yeah, it's the same phrase there. That would be against. Yeah, and well, I, th I think the idea there is that uh, the desire is against one another. That's the way that it's translated. Yeah, yeah. Con I mean, like, conflict is the basic meaning. Yeah. I mean, you could go into that and try to talk about the nuances of that, but certainly what Genesis 3 is about there is about some kind of fundamental conflict um, that wouldn't have been there without the fall, without sin. Anything else? All right, well, let's look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we come today to the last section, um, uh, paragraph 10 on the scriptures and before we get to that, I just want to give a quick sort of review, recap of all that we've ground we've covered um, in this first chapter of the standards um, or the confession on 
the doctrine of scripture, um, which I think is one of the most important um, chapters in all of the confession. So if you recall, the confession begins with a statement about, in the first paragraph, the necessity of scripture. And these lines and italics that I've given here are just my uh, summary um, of the content of each of those paragraphs. Um, they argue that general revelation is sufficient. So general revelation meaning God's creation, his general providence of the world, his ruling over creation, is sufficient to give us knowledge of God's goodness, wisdom, and power, but leaves us without, and leaves us without excuse. And um, we are um, uh, defenseless before God in terms of where general revelation gives us a sufficient knowledge of him um, that we ought to worship him properly. Um, and yet, because of sin, general revelation is not sufficient to give us the knowledge of God that is necessary for us to be saved. And so God has to speak, um, and God does speak, and this is where the doctrine of Scripture begins, with God speaking um, to us, with God taking the initiative. Uh, therefore, God has revealed himself directly to his people. He's not simply relied upon um, what we can observe in creation or what we can observe about um, sort of the provident, God's providential care of the world. Um, God has, the, the writers want to say, um, revealed himself directly to his people. He's done this um, throughout redemptive history and dreams and visions um, through the prophets, um, ultimately through his son, um, as Hebrews 1 tells us. Um, but now, in the, the epoch in which we live, um, he has committed that same wholly unto writing. So all that God has revealed in that kind of special way, that direct way, has been summarized and written down. Um, it's, it's no longer, God doesn't reveal himself in the same way to us through dreams or visions uh, or those kinds of things. All of that has been committed um, wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. So that's why I've titled that first paragraph, The Necessity of Scripture. We, we need it. We can't um, come to God without it. Those formal ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And so we believe that, that all that we need of God's special revelation is recorded for us um, wholly in the scriptures, in writing. Um, um, it won't change. It'll be set for all time. Uh, the second paragraph there is about the content of scripture. Um, um, basically, that paragraph is just summarizing what, what is the canon of Scripture. There's the list of all the Old Testament books, all the New Testament books. Um, and then this statement, all of these are given by inspiration of God um, to be the rule of faith and life. And that phrase, rule of faith and life, is an important one. Um, uh, and the, the rest of the chapter really is going to unpack those ideas. Um, scripture becomes the norm by which we are normed. Um, it is um, our authority, but it also is, um, it's, it's not just like a, a legal code, it's also a path, it's also a, a way of living um, um, that is revealed to us um, in the scriptures. Um, the third chapter has to do with the Apocrypha, and there are polemic reasons for this um, in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent. Um, these books are commonly called Apocrypha, um, the books, sorry, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being a divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture. So they're saying positively what the Scriptures are, listing all of the books that you find in uh, your standard English Bible, um, and then they're saying the Apocrypha books are not uh, Scripture, though they are, they're careful to say, uh, important for historical reasons and can be studied like any other human document, but they're not divinely inspired. 
Uh, the fourth paragraph talks about the source of Scripture's authority, and this is an important concept for the writers of the standards. Um, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly on God. God is the one who attests to the authority of Scripture. Um, he's the one who gives it um, its authority over us in our lives. It doesn't, isn't dependent on um, any man's opinion of it, any church's opinion of it. The Lord is the one who has set it apart. Um, the fifth paragraph talks about the basis of our assurance of Scripture's divine origin, and it, this is a longer um, uh, paragraph. It, it talks about all of Scripture's remarkable qualities in terms of the, uh, its literary beauty and the, the gravity of it and the way that it all holds together, and you can trace different themes through it, and um, the way that it, it just has a sort of inherent quality um, in itself of, of being... Um, uh, having a kind of dignity um, that's attractive. But then it says, all that being true, essentially, still our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth of the Holy Scripture and the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So ultimately, and we have to say that the Spirit is the one who leads us to um, understand that the Scripture is God's Word and thus is authoritative, that it's you know, we don't want to locate Scripture's authority in something that, um, you know, is, is apart from the work of the Spirit. Um, it's not something we can sort of analyze on the table and sort of parse out exactly. We, and we should talk about the beauty of the Scriptures and how it holds together, all of that. But ultimately, what gives us assurance about its authority and its divine origin is the Spirit working in our hearts. Um, the sixth paragraph talks about the role of Scripture and the role of the Spirit, how these things work together. It kind of builds on that um, uh, discussion about the Spirit from the previous paragraph. Um, they say that all things necessary for God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So um, Scripture is about everything. Um, Either it's explicitly stated in the scriptures or it can be understood from the scriptures um, through um, deduction, through good and necessary consequence. And we believe that that active interpretation of the church is something that is guided by the spirit. It's not simply man's reason, but the spirit actually um, and it enables us to rightly understand and interpret scripture. So there's this, there's this um, interconnected relationship between the spirit, not only that the spirit is the source of scripture's inspiration, um, that it was scripture in the first place, but, but the spirit is always involved intimately in the way that scripture is worked out in the church and used in the church. And they say explicitly that we need the inward illumination of the spirit of God um, that is necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word. So you, they want to really, this is a really important chapter in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we want to say that the scripture is not just um, a book that we read and, and in it we determine and understand everything we need for salvation. No, we actually need the spirit to enable us um, to read the scripture in such a way that it becomes illuminated, it becomes uh, radiant so that we see and understand um, uh, the words uh, and we, we um, are led to Christ in that way. Um, you know, an example of that, of course, is in Acts with the Philipp or the not the Philippian, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch who's reading uh, Isaiah 53, but needs the help of the Spirit, needs Philip to come and 
interpret for him um, the things and what they mean. Um, in addition, um, at the end of that paragraph, um, they say there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature in Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. And so what they're saying there is that there are some things that we do um, that are not explicitly stated in God's word um, but we, they can be worked out. They can be understood um, by the general principles of the scriptures along with um, natural revelation, along with human reason um, uh, in accordance with the spirit. So there's this kind of dialogue that takes place in the interpretation of the scriptures. Um, the seventh paragraph there on the back of your page has to do with the clarity of the scriptures. Um, this is a short one, so I'll just read it in its entirety. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So some things are more clear than others, essentially. Yet those things which are necessary, that word necessary again, to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So they really want to here reserve um, and, and make it clear that, that people can read the Bible um, and understand what it means, essentially, is what they're saying here. Um, now, of course, you know, don't forget the spirit. That was, they just talked about all that. Um, but they want to be clear that it's not necessary for you to be um, a learned theologian in order to understand those things in the scriptures that are necessary for salvation, that the Spirit does that through the due use of ordinary means. Now that phrase ordinary means is important because it's used later in the standards to refer to things like uh, preaching, um, things like the administration of the sacraments, things like prayer. Um, so it, 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 they're not just talking about reading the scriptures on a deserted island somewhere, but reading uh, the scriptures in the context of the community of the church. Um, that these things will be made clear um, through those ordinary means. Um, the eighth paragraph has to do with scripture and human language. Um, they make clear that the scriptures um, that are directly inspired by God um, are those words that were originally written down um, by the various authors in the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Um, God, they say, has by his special providence preserved um, those writings um, throughout history and kept them pure is the language that is used. Um, therefore, those manuscripts are authentical. Um, they are authentic. They're trustworthy. And in all controversies of the church, all deliberations of the church, um, they should be, the, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures are what should be referred to. Um, that we should go back to the sources, back to those original manuscripts. And, um, and read in the Greek and Hebrew. But the second half of that paragraph makes it clear, essentially because not everyone can read Greek or Hebrew, um, still all of God's people have a right unto, they have a right unto, that's an important language there, um, and they have an interest in the scriptures, and they're commanded by God to read and search the scriptures. Ergo, therefore, the scriptures ought to be translated um, into the common language, the vulgar language of every nation. Um, so that the word of God may dwell plentifully in all, that they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Um, again, as we've discussed, this was a, a, a line in the sand kind of thing um, for 
um, the Protestant Reformation um, and the Westminster Standards makes it explicit in a way that um, is not necessarily made explicit in other confessions, Protestant confessions of that time. The necessity of the translation of the scriptures into the vernacular of the people. Um, in many ways, that's one of the most lasting uh, changes that has taken place in the church in the last 500 years globally is this now pretty common assumption, even in the Roman Catholic Church, right? There are, um, a, there's an understanding that lay people should be able to read the scriptures in their own language. Um, and that, that is because of the kind of logic and arguments that are made here. It really has changed the church in that way. It really is one of the most significant differences in your life as a Christian today versus if you've been born a thousand years ago, um, that you have the scriptures in your vernacular language. Uh, chapter nine, or paragraph nine, the rule of scripture's interpretation is scripture. Um, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. Um, therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So we talked about this last week, this idea that scripture interprets itself. And in order to understand any one text, you really have to have an understanding of the whole. And you have to have an understanding of other passages that relate to it. And so this is, so knowledge of the scripture builds on itself. That you're never going to waste time studying one portion of God's word because that's going to illuminate and, and give you a clear understanding of all the other parts as well because of the way that scripture is related to itself. So that's what we've covered so far. Before we get into the last paragraph, any, any questions? I just want to put that before you. I think these are really important concepts and it's helpful to just kind of review these things. Any, anything that stands out from those, that summary that you want to ask about or discuss or comment on? Yes, ma'am, Trudy. Um, so I would say I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this question. Um, there may be others in this room that have better qualified than I to answer it. Um, I've not, I've not personally read in depth any of the apocryphal books. Um, so uh, my understanding is that the apocrypha was codified in the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, um, um, and was not, you know, there, in if you, I mean, if, it's more complicated than that in the sense that if you read some of the church fathers like Augustine and others, they will refer to the Apocrypha. I would argue that they don't refer to it in the same way as they do the canonical scriptures, that even in the, you know, the early church, medieval church, there was a distinction being made between the canonical books of scripture and the Apocryphal books. Um, at I, in terms of the logic of why those books were chosen, I don't, I don't know that I could really answer that. Um, maybe someone else can, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. But there's some 
Yes, Jeremy. I agree with that. I think that's true. Did you have a hand up, Eric? Yeah, again, I'm this I'm out I'm way out in my expertise here, so I'm not even gonna try to Guess Scott may have a more. Deep, I know you've studied these things some. Okay, okay, all right. I can't put Scott in the spot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Billy. Billy may know. Yes, yes. There are certain Roman Catholic doctrines that are um, that are taught in the apocryphal books. Yeah, that's true. My, my sense, I'm not an expert even on modern Roman Catholic theology, but my sense is that there is, even in the modern Roman Catholic Church, a dis, there's a distinction that's made, maybe not explicitly, but there's, apocryphal books are not given the same kind of weight as the books that are canonical. And I think that's important to say, um, in terms of the practice of the church, in terms of the ways that they're used. Um, anything non-apocryphal? <laughs> in terms of... Uh, what what the what we've reviewed here? Yeah, Eric.
So you're saying that we should not neglect to study the hard passages? And is that what you're saying? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. I, certainly, we, we should not take this principle to mean that we shouldn't dive into those quote-unquote harder places in the scriptures, whatever those might be. Um, I think it's just giving a general principle of how we approach those things that we certainly, certainly there are places where God has spoken more clear than others in the scriptures, and we should rely on those, the clarity um, to interpret the things that are more complicated. But, but absolutely, this, we, should, we should not shy away from hard books, quote unquote, or hard passages. Absolutely. Uh, there is great payoff, I think, um, in wrestling with those things. Yeah. Anything else? Before we look at this last paragraph here about the supreme authority of the scriptures. All right, well, I'll read this and we'll talk about it for a minute and we can discuss anything you want. <clears throat> so that concluding paragraph um, of the first chapter of the confession on scripture reads this way. It's on the bottom, second half of the back page. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Um, so they are in this paragraph wanting to kind of put a capstone and underscoring everything that they've argued for thus far. And in many ways, this is fundamentally what they've argued. Um, the ultimate um, authority of the scripture in every um, aspect of the church's life and every aspect of human life and every controversy of the church, um, um, you know, in contrast even to um, the ecumenical councils, even to um, uh, the, um, the church fathers and other theologians, um, all of these things are to be examined um, so to be held up against, um, and whose sentence we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So ultimately, the Scripture has to reign supreme over all of these things. Um, Lethem comments, he says, all religious controversies are to be determined by the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture in the original languages of the Old Testament, Hebrew and New Testament Greek. All decrees of church councils are to be examined in the light of Scripture. Um, all the writings of the church fathers are to be considered in terms of how far they correspond to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. All human teachings of whatever origin are similar to, similarly to be examined. Moreover, we are to rest, and I, I think that choice of word is important and helpful. We are to rest in the judgment of Scripture. That is, it is to be our authority too. This is a comprehensive assertion of biblical authority. The assembly obviously expected the papacy to submit to scripture as well. Um, and there is certainly polemics involved in this um, statement. I mean, they're making a positive statement about what they believe is true, but certainly they are contrasting themselves with Rome here in terms of 
um, their perspective on the scriptures. And, um, and it's an important distinction. It is one of the most fundamental things that's true about the, um, the Protestant church. Um, uh, this paragraph, I say, communicates the fundamental principle of sola scriptura. Um, sola scriptura, I think, as we've seen in manifest ways throughout the previous uh, paragraphs in this chapter, does not mean that we do not rely on others, um, including the church throughout the ages, to help us interpret scripture. Um, all of that's important. But it does mean that ultimately scripture alone is the supreme judge of all the doctrines of the church, that, that everything has to be examined in the light of the spirit speaking through the scripture. Um, this paragraph leads to a very important principle for reformed and Protestant Christians any teaching, creed, or confession of the church is amendable, is changeable by future generations of the church based on a deeper understanding of the scriptures. This principle applies even to the Westminster, not even, but also applies to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and its writers intended that to be the case. And, and I think that's important to see that they, they're writing this in mind, understanding that they're trying to make this definitive uh, you know, confession, um, uh, but they're not doing so in a way that is not itself to be examined in the light of Scripture. And, and it can be amended, and it has been amended. The version of the Westminster Standards that we use today is different um, from the version that was written um, in, the, in the 1600s. Um, not in, you know, deeply fundamental ways, I don't think, but there are differences in terms of the ways that we and the, the standards that our denomination uses um, regarding the relationship of the church and the state, um, regarding the, um, the Pope being named explicitly as the Antichrist, some, some of things like that. There have been amendments that have been made, changes that have been made um, to the standards um, in the century since <clears throat> in terms of its, its normal use in the world today. Um, and that's because we believe that that the scriptures have to be the ultimate and final authority um, for any of us and any of our the, the things that we believe. Any thoughts or questions? That principled idea really is a fundamental principle problem, I think. Yeah, Kathina. Yeah, I think that relationship is rightly expressed in this paragraph, as I think you're saying, that all of the things that men write, essentially, or believe, are to be examined in light of Scripture, right? Um, they, they're held up and compared to, like, they're, that, that relationship is not some kind of equal conversation. Um, they're subsidiary, and Scripture becomes the lens by which we evaluate them. I think this also, I mean, this is important as in terms of interacting with um, 
critiques of sola scriptura um, that are out there. Sometimes sola scriptura is argued that, well, well you just mean basically that um, you know, anybody in their Bible is their own pope, right? They just, however they interpret it, um, you know, that, that's where this leads. It's just chaos, basically. Um, and I would really push against that. I don't think that's a fair, um, I want to be, try to be as careful as I can to not make straw men out of Roman Catholic arguments, but I think that's a straw man um, from, from people who are critique this Protestant principle, whether that's Roman Catholic or someone else. Um, I mean, the whole Westminster Standards is authoritative interpretation of Scripture that I'm in submission to, that Lauren's in submission to, that you know, any pastor or elder um, in our church is in submission to. Um, and, and all the teaching that takes place in our church is evaluated and not just by the scriptures, but by this, this authoritative interpretation that we've submitted to of the scriptures. Um, so I really don't think it's true. I don't, and, I don't, and as, the, as you read through this, par- this chapter, certainly um, they are talking in many places about the idea of um, the necessity of human learning, the necessity of depending on others, um, the necessity of good and necessary consequence, all of these different things in order to understand the scriptures. They're not arguing that all of us, you know, we just individually come to the scriptures on our own sort of, you know, shoulders and then figure out what it means from scratch. That, that would be absurd. Um, sola Scriptura, rather, is this fundamental principle that, that yes, the scripture is supreme. Um, it is the thing that evaluates us, um, and and all of that we decide, all that we teach, has to be evaluated under um, under the authority and examining eye of the scriptures. Um, I do want to say this. I'll give you a question after that, Eric. But I, I think one of the most two of the the theologians that have most influenced me um, have been John Calvin and um, uh, contemporary John Frame. Um, and what's fascinating about what you read about both of these theologians is the ways that they interact with the scriptures is just remarkable. If you read Calvin's Institutes, um, you will discover it is not a systematic theology in the kind of um, scholastic form that exists in much of what is written today by more modern theologians. Um, certainly it's nothing like um, the scholastic movement in the medieval church. Um, what Calvin is doing constantly is, is just interacting with the scriptures. Um, it, it's basically just a, you know, a 1,500 pages of reflection and wrestling with the text of the scriptures themselves. And that leads Calvin in some interesting and unusual places, I think. It's, it's because he does that, because he allows the scriptures to, to shape where he's going. Um, it, it's a fascinating, it's just a different way of doing theology um, and thinking about God. And human life, and and, I, and John Frame is a theologian that I would commend to you as well because I, I think Frame does a similar thing. If you read his systematic theologies, his doctrine of God, his doctrine of the Christian life, etc., um, they're just basically a constant commentary interaction with different texts, um, trying to make sense of how they work together. And um, and again, with Frame, he gets. He goes in some weird places because of that, um, because he's not as systematic. He's not just working deductively through theological propositions. But I, I kind of love it because it, it reflects this like openness to, I want to I really make sure that what I'm teaching and preaching fits with what the scriptures actually say. And um, 
and the scriptures themselves are not some sort of like completely orderly document, you know, that's laid out in a, in a kind of systematic way. It's more complicated than that. And I, I'm grateful for that. That's, those are men who have shaped me um, in terms of um, not just what they believe propositionally about the scriptures, but how they put that into practice in their theological work. I mean, I want that to be true for myself as well. Um, yeah, I think James and Eric had some thoughts for maybe somebody else. Jeremy. Yeah, James. And then I'll go to Jeremy. I agree. The scripture that's yeah. articulated here is that it encourages like this uniquely Protestant piety when coming to the scriptures, where we put ourselves in such a profound and um, extreme posture of submission <laughs> um, to what we're coming to. Um, that's right, it, and it's not just submission to a book, right? It's submission to the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures, and I think that's right. And that's, yeah, the the Holy Spirit, his the fingerprints of the Spirit are all over this first chapter of the standards, um, and I think that's right. I think that's important. Um, there is no separate chapter on the Holy Spirit in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and sometimes in contemporary conversations, people say, "Well, we should amend it and add one," right? And I think there's a fair argument for that. I'd be open to that. But I think if you read through the standard or the confession, what you find is that the spirit is talked about everywhere. Um, and and it, our doctrine of the Holy Spirit is woven throughout um, many of the different chapters of the confession, um, including, of course, this first one in terms of our doctrine of the scripture. Um, so I, I don't, yeah, I think sometimes reformed, the reformed sort of world gets a bad rap in terms of you know, we don't talk enough about the spirit or whatever, and maybe we don't, but certainly we, we have all the resources to, um, to talk about the spirit. That's part of our tradition, um, and we, sh we should talk about the spirit a lot. Jeremy. Oh, yeah. Sure. No, absolutely. That's you're right. There's a certain kind of modern Protestant Christian who is contemptuous of um, interpretive traditions and the history of the church and and kind of self-consciously does wants to read the Bible on their own as though such a thing were possible. Um, 
And yeah, we, we should say that's not, there's no reason for that. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, no, sure. Well, that's, that's the fifth commandment from my perspective, you know, is um, giving deference and honor to our forefathers in the faith, um, whether they were Presbyterians or not. Yeah, absolutely. The dot. Okay, right. right. I'm with you now. This uh, is what I'm saying. Yep. You know, like the, the, the critique that I would have heard, right. you know, or that I hear even, you know, still is don't quote Westminster standards to me. Show me in the Bible, and and I think that that's fair. And but the in, implication there is that <clears throat> in the Reformed tradition, we place more weight on what the Westminster standards say. When what's interesting is if you then point it out, well, the Westminster Standards itself right. says the scripture is the ultimate judge. Yeah. So by ascribing standards, we are saying that scripture is the ultimate So it's just, I don't know, I think that that's an interesting yeah. um, thing to be able to say. Right. Yeah, that's that's right, and it's certainly in the modern evangelical American and Western world generally, um, Christian world, there is a kind of idea that I don't have a creed, I just have the scriptures, right? Um, that's why we're not gonna, you know, say the Apostles' Creed or something. Um, and, or the same logic could apply to the Westminster Standard, right? Yeah, and yeah, that, I think that's right, Donna, that, that um, certainly there's a danger, and we have to be careful when we, as reformed people who love our tradition and the Westminster standards, we, we certainly don't, we want to be careful that they don't become um, like the scriptures in the ways that we treat them. Um, but we also, what we're doing, I think functionally is we're saying everyone has a perspective, everyone has, um, reads the scriptures from some kind of, um, they've been shaped in some way. There are certain things that they assume are true and we want to be explicit about those things that we believe are true, knowing that there is a feedback loop that exists, that those things themselves can be examined and revised in light of the Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. And, um, and I think that's a, I think it's, I think it's an intellectually, more intellectually honest way of describing how we actually interact with the text. I don't think anyone is, well, obviously, um, you know, even people who learn biblical Greek and Hebrew are not able to kind of you know, go back and grow up in those cultures. I mean, we all, we're all doing interpretation. No, none of us come to the scriptures on our own. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I think it's important to say that. But, but to do that does not mean that you can't still have the scriptures as your primary or your supreme 
um, authority. Absolutely. All right, one more, and then we got to wrap up. Yep. Oh, sure. It sounds like he's actually quoting a creed from the early church, and it found its way into the scriptures. Yeah. Like in the Peter Spiritza, Yeah, you certainly see that, and I think in both the Old and New Testaments. There's interesting passage in Numbers where the the worshiper brings the first fruits and he has to say um, this creed essentially that I am the son of uh, the wandering Aramean um, Abraham and the Lord took me out of slavery and brought it was it's just interesting the ways that that um like he's given words to recite about himself does that make sense that are put on him by the in a very similar way that the creeds are yeah yeah the creeds are so helpful all right let's stand and pray Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for um, their beauty and their value. We thank you for um, the intimate relationship, um, the, tr- the triune way in which um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you reveal yourself um, in the scriptures. And we thank you for how the scriptures point to the Son. We thank you for how the Spirit illuminates the scriptures for us. We thank you for how uh, the scriptures themselves are um, the wisdom of the Father given to us. We pray. Um, Father, that you would indeed um, give us um, a deeper knowledge of these things and love for um, the word that you've spoken to us. Uh, We pray you grant us wisdom in this way. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.